Good morning, Daylighters, and people listening everywhere. We appreciate you tuning in to our broadcast this morning, and uh, look forward to being with you live as soon as possible. I have a few announcements before we get into the message, and first off, I just want to thank our crew yesterday for uh, going downtown with us. We, we put out a call for the, the needs of people who are living without homes right now. We needed sleeping bags and blankets and flashlights and glow sticks and propane, and, and, and you guys came through in a big way. We packed my pickup truck and went downtown, and we took... We took enough food for about 50 or 60 people and uh, filled some bellies and helped some people get warm. And so it was a, it was a really special event, and I want to appreciate those that participated. And we're doing kind of a bare-bones thing down there right now because of COVID, but soon enough we'll all be able to go down and kind of blitz the place and, and be able to serve our community. So thanks, and just keep that in mind. If you don't mind taking a moment to check in on Facebook, every, every month at, at a Daylight when you check in on Facebook, it serves a good cause. And actually, we had some technical difficulties this morning and don't know what that new good cause is for February, but last month it was days of school for kids in Haiti that would normally have a hard time getting an education. And so uh, it's just as simple as going to Facebook and clicking check-in. If you wouldn't mind doing that, it's going to serve somebody somewhere. We just don't know who right now. And you can go to mydaylightchurch.com is the place to go to find out everything going on at daylight at any given time. And right now we have our playlist for this quarter, our soundtrack for this quarter up, which includes Spotify and, and Apple playlists, some podcasts that we think would interest you, and some books we think you might want to read, and some just some interesting stuff there. So go to mydaylightchurch.com, and that's also where you'll sign up for our Wednesday and Thursday night Philippians Bible study, and uh, that's been a great event. The Thursday night event has a live option, so we're meeting here at the church Thursday nights at 7. The Wednesday night is entirely online, and both of them have an online option. And then our youth group meets on Thursday nights as well. And all that information is on mydaylightchurch.com. If you consider yourself a daylighter, then please consider uh, continuing to support us financially as we continue to do ministry through the COVID season. There's two ways you can do it easily. One is daylightchurch.com slash giving. You can set up recurring donations or just one time right there pretty easily. And then the second is to text 84321 with an amount. So if you want to give 20 bucks today, just hit 20 and send it to that number, 8432. Two one, and if it's your first time, they'll set it. They'll set it up. They'll ask for some credit card information, and then you're good to go from the, forever after. You just hit send. I'm going to jump right in, and we have talked about these words at Daylight Church multiple times. Tohu wabohu, and tohu wabohu is in the Hebrew Scriptures in Genesis chapter one, where it says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." And it says just right after that, it says, "Now the earth was formless." And void. And so at the beginning of creation, there was kind of nothing. There was entropy and chaos. And that's the Hebrew words tohu wabohu. And we're not going to get into it. There's a lot of theological implications as to why those words are important, but we're not going to cover that today. But instead, we're going to teach you two new Greek words, phobu kai tromu, which I was telling my friend Chris Mueller this morning, they, sound, they almost sound Hebrew because we're so used to saying tohu wabohu around here. And phobu kai tromu is translated in the New Testament as fear and trembling. And in my opinion, this, this, this little Greek phrase has been misused in the church for, for quite some time. And we're going to talk about it today because it shows up in the book of Philippians where we're studying. And I'll give you an example of Phobu Kaitromu. And my wife and I were at Universal Studios in Florida years ago. And there was a ride there called The Revenge of the Mummy. And The Revenge of the Mummy, we thought, was going to be a pretty tame little ride through an exploratory session where you might see sarcophagi and such and clay urns, and I don't know what we were expecting, but I, I've, I've since noticed that there's a big sign out front that says, this is an exhilarating ride, be careful, pregnant women should not ride this ride, and so forth, and my wife is not a roller coaster person at all, but we got on this thing having no idea what was to come, 
And just seconds into it, she is gripping my arm like a vice going, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm like trying to hold her. You know, I've, I've got the big straps on it. And when those, when those things came down, she looked at me like, what the heck is going on here? And we knew at that moment that we had made a big mistake. And, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to comfort her, but I'm trapped in this thing. So I, I just got like one hand awkwardly on her shoulder while she's trying, she's gripping my arm as tight as she can. Oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. And you get through, and it goes into the dark, and, and the mummy appears and yells, I own your soul now, and all this other stuff happens. And I remember flames shooting across the ceiling so hot that I, I thought it was going to singe my eyebrows. Like, like you could really feel the fire in this thing. And then it gets to the end, it comes to a clacking stop. And, and if I remember right, at that point, you kind of feel like you're about to exit the ride. And then I think the mummy jumps out again and says, I still own your soul, you think this is over, something like that. And then it does the whole ride backwards. And so Kara, Kara's grabbing me, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. And this, was, this is an example of phobu kaitromu, fear and trembling. But I want to point out, and it's so important that we get this today, that there were two experiences on that ride that day, and both of them were phobu kaitromu. My wife's experience of utter terror and like an encapsulating fear that, that kind of owned her. And, and as soon as we got off the ride, I said, okay, babe, I couldn't enjoy that at all because of you. So I'm going to go back and do it again. So I jumped back in, and I did it again. And mine was an exhilaration. Mine, mine was an excitement, phobu kaitromu. And in the Greek, this word could be translated as either. And it's going to be so important as we get that as we go on. But we're, we're studying the, the book of Philippians right now, and we've, we've discovered that Philippians is vignettes with a theme. And uh, that theme we've seen consistently. So, so you're going to see all kinds of little points that pop up in the book of Philippians, this letter that Paul wrote to the church of Philippi. And there's, there's all kinds of little thoughts that he brings out, and we're going to touch on some of those little thoughts, but then there's this central theme, and that central theme is that your life story is supposed to be a lived expression of Jesus' story, and that that's a story of letting go. And we've been tackling it verse by verse, and we're going to continue that. So I'm going to, I'm going to read from Philippians 2, starting in verse 12 right now, and read through the first chapter of or, or the rest of Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. So Paul is in prison at this point. He says, continue to work out your salvation with phobu kaitromu, fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according, in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be, become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And then he's got a little bookkeeping family business to attend to. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no, no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served me within the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. You notice he's, wait, he's waiting to find out if he lives or dies. Here. I'm, I'm waiting to see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for you all and is distressed because you heard he was ill. And indeed he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow 
upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Just as a side little note, if you deal with anxiety, you are not alone. Paul dealt with it as well. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So I know it's a long passage, and we're, we're, we're only going to really, really tackle a small portion of this passage today, and the rest of it we're going to kind of do as little vignettes. But the first thought, so we've been doing, as we've been doing this series, we've been doing thoughts and takeaways, thoughts and takeaways. What's the, what's the little vignette that appears, and then what is the, the takeaway from that thought? And the first, the first thought in this passage is that we need to pause for a second, because he starts with the word, therefore. Super important word that we skirt over in Scripture. We, we, find, we, we, we skip past it and just move on. But this is a word that, skip, that turns us back into what came previously. So whatever it was he said right before this is tied to the thought that we're about to discuss. And so it's important that we take a step back. There's, there's a movie, one of my favorite movies, called The Prestige. And in The Prestige, Christian Bale's character does a, a magic trick called The Transporting Man. And The Transporting Man, he, at one point he is... He, he's got two doors on the stage with him, and one door is here, and one door is way, they're, they're, they're separated much bigger than our stage here at, at Daylight Church, but he's standing in front of one door, and he's bouncing a ball, and he throws the ball down, and it bounces twice, and he closes the door behind him, and then he opens the door all the way across the stage and catches the ball before it can hit the ground. So somehow Christian Bale has moved from point A to point B like that. And Hugh Jackman's character makes a point later that it's an incredible act of magic that's kind of unexplainable. But he says Christian Bale's showmanship is so poor that nobody recognizes what they just saw. Like they, they don't get it that they've just been in the in, in in the they've just been connected with greatness as far as a magician is concerned. They've just seen one of the greatest acts of magic that they'll ever see in their lives, but they don't get it because his magicianship, his, his presentation is lacking. And so Hugh Jackman is his competitor and eventually comes up with the, the, the real transported man or the better transported man and does it with a big show and lights and pyrotechnics and, and all kinds of things. And I, I think it's important to bring up that, how do I want to say this? Last week I did a sermon and I could almost say it was the most important sermon of my life. I, I think I would be comfortable saying that my entire life of following Jesus and talking to crowds and talking to people, like that's last Sunday is the moment that I feel like something, something great happened. And I'm not trying to say that I'm Christian Bale and you guys should all be amazed by the presentation because what, what I am saying is that it might have been missed. If, if you want to get a hold of Jesus, if you want to get a hold of of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to go back and watch it again and listen carefully because I think there's something really magical in that passage of Scripture that could be easily missed. Uh, and, and part of that could be my fault. So go back to last Sunday and catch up so that we understand what this therefore is that Paul's talking about because he's saying, check out last Sunday so that we can understand this Sunday. So go back and check that out if you would. So in that passage, he says, in, in, in last Sunday's passage, he says, you have the same mind among yourselves. So he's talking about unity among the church. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm sorry, let me back up. Standing firm in the gospel with one mind, striving side by side for faith in the gospel. Complete my joy by being with the same mind, having the same love, being full accord in one mind. So he says unity. 
side by side, one mind, one accord, one purpose, one, 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 one. And there's all kinds of things that churches can kind of make it their battle cry and their rallying point when it comes to theology, when it comes to lived Christian expression. And Paul tells us in that previous passage exactly what that is supposed to be. And it's to have the mind. He says, this is the mind. You're supposed to have one mind, one mind, one mind. Here's the mind. It's the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather made himself a servant. And so he says, be of one mind, be in unity, be of one mind, be in unity, be side by side, be of one accord, be of one purpose. And here's, here is that one mind. Christ laid himself down. That's the thing that's supposed to be the rallying point of the church. There's all kinds of theological disputes out there. There's all kinds of societal disputes as to what lived Christian expression should look like. But Paul says, the one mind is to lay yourself down for another. And it's important that we get that as we continue on. Now, I'm going to jump into some takeaways. And what I mean by takeaways is that I'm going to combine the thought and the takeaway to takeaways because we're going to fly through some of the points that Paul makes in this passage because I really want to get to one particular part. And the first is that you got to have them, meaning batteries. you got to come with your own batteries. He says, he says in this passage in Philippians 2, he says, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so, so what he's saying is, I'm not the catalyst for your growth. And you got to come with your own batteries as a matter of faith in Jesus. And so the, the people who grow in Jesus and get closer to him and serve others well, they're, they're motivated people that, that do the study on their own, that do the efforts on their own, that, that surrender on their own. Nobody, nobody can do this walk for you, and that's one of the takeaways. The second one ties into something that I tell my kids all the time. My kids will be whining. Judson took my bar. I want to eat the candy or, or whatever. And I often say to them, this is what you look like. And I repeat back to them whatever it was that they said. That's what you look like. I say that to my kids all the time. And Paul kind of touches on that concept here. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And so the Christian journey is challenging. Uh, You will be challenged on all sides. Uh, it, It requires a laying down and a letting go, and none of that is easy. But Paul calls us to do it without complaint. Paul calls us to be people that don't, it's so awful, it's so bad, but rather we take our licks as we need to and we move on. And again, it's a takeaway, so I'm just throwing it out there and moving on to the next thing. In this passage, he also says that this isn't our home, this world is not our home, but we're supposed to shine here. He says, we are children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And we automatically hear warped and crooked and think bad, like like people are bad, people are wicked. We we have to be the righteous folks among all the bad folks. And I, don't, I, I, think, I think if you look at warped and crooked, it just means everything is messed up. It's not, it's not straight like it's supposed to be. It's not what it was intended to be, and that's the world we live in. But he does say, he does say we will shine among people, and so somehow... People are warped and crooked in that they're not, they're not what they were intended to be. doesn't necessarily mean wicked or evil, although there are many wicked and people, evil people out there. But he's saying, this isn't you. You don't, you don't belong in this place. The followers of Jesus are transformed and changed to be different. And he says that you will shine among them like stars in the sky. And so just recognize that this world is not your home. It's not where you belong. This place is messed up. It's always going to be messed up. But there's the light of God that can fill you and, and make, the, make the world a different place when the light of God shines in you. And he ties that into this thought, that this takeaway that you're supposed to offer yourself. He says, I'm being poured out 
like a drink offering. And in the Old Testament, when they would make their sacrifices on the altar, whether it was for a sacrifice for sin or a sacrifice for atonement or a sacrifice for thanksgiving or whatever it was, a lot of times they would do drink offerings. They would take expensive wine and they would pour it over the offering. And it would be, it would be a financial sacrifice to do so, uh, giving that up to God. And, he, and Paul describes his, himself as this drink offering, that we are supposed to lay ourselves on the altar and give ourselves up to God and say, my life is yours. He also, like I mentioned before, talk, touches on the idea that we're all family. And you see him sending Timothy and Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. And there's this one little portion of that. It's a kind of a long part of the passage where it's kind of um, reconnecting old friends. But he says, Epaphroditus, he says, he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. And this is like next level friendship stuff. And so, you know, Epaphroditus couldn't mark on Facebook saved from the plague or whatever, you know, like, like we would today, saved from the earthquake or safe from whatever. Uh, Philippi was a long way from Rome or Ephesus, wherever this took place, and we're not really sure where that happened. But he knew that his friends back in Philippi had heard that he was sick. And because they had heard he was sick and he got better, he was stressed out and, and sad, and it says longing for them because they still thought he was sick, and he desperately wanted them to know that he was okay. And this, this to me is next-level friendship stuff. This is, this is where I feel what you feel, you feel what I feel. We're separated from... From in a great distance, and, and we still love each other. And Paul, Paul gives us the takeaway in this passage that we are to be family and to long for each other and to be concerned what other people feel where we're concerned. And again, these, these are all sermons of themselves, but they're the takeaways, and I didn't want to ignore the rest of the passage. Actually, I kind of did want to ignore the rest of the passage, which is why we're flying through all this, because I spent way too much time on one little portion, but hopefully it'll pay off in the end. The next takeaway is that we're supposed to honor people who deserve honor. He talks about Epaphroditus, and he says when he shows up, honor him. Honor people like him, people who make sacrifices for their faith. And I don't know if Chris, Chris Booker just walked out of the room, and so I don't know if he'll, he'll see this during edits, but he's a guy I want to honor right now that, that as we're doing COVID-compliant church, we could not do it without this guy. As you see in the picture that he did of himself, which I think is pretty dang cool, uh, he wears a lot of shirts around here, a lot of hats around here, and even, even trying to hook up the thermostats to the Wi-Fi, and all, all of our experts couldn't do it. All the calling calls couldn't do it, but he knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy, and bam, 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 got it done. And so, Chris Booker, when you watch this, I just want to honor you and say thank you. We couldn't do what we're doing without you. Love you and appreciate you. Hey, my, my other guy, Chris Mueller, that happens to be in the room, give him a woo. It's exciting. Woo! Okay, thoughts on the main passage, the, the main event today. And, and I have so many, and, and I've spent so much time on this passage, and, and I'm still a little lost on it, and, and I don't want to pretend that I've firmly grasped it and that I just really get it, and, and this is the answer. That's not the impression I want to get today, but, but there's this passage. Whoops, wrong one. That's my don't show slide, and I just showed it like a bonehead. Um, there's this passage that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And just this, this little tip, Chris, were you in here for that whole thing? Yeah. Oh, you're hiding in the corner, man. He's a, he's a ninja in the shadows. What's up, bro? Hey, honor you. Love you, man. Um, fear and trembling. So this idea, this is like a bumper sticker thing that people want to say to, to say God is, is mad and, and, and you need to bow down to him and get your life right and, and work out being saved. And, and I, just, I just feel like it's a passage that kind of, wraps our brains around a theology that I don't consider accurate. But 
It bothers me for several reasons. One, it says to work out your salvation. So in, in English, it, it really grates on where I'm at theologically because it says you're supposed to work out your salvation. And of course, Ephesians 2 tells us it's by grace you've been saved through faith and not by anything from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, it says, so that no one can boast. It, sa it says you're saved, sozo, which is the Greek, salvation. It says sozo comes to you, not by works, and then Philippians 2 tells us, work out your salvation, which just messes with my brain. Like, why would, why would it even say that? Do these passages contradict each other? And then it says to do it in fear and trembling, but we talk about Jesus being perfect love and, and love transforming people. And, and 1 John, which I consider one of the most tantamount portions of all of Scripture, it says there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. And the person who fears has not been made complete in love. And, and it's this idea that, that fear is kind of the enemy that... Of Christianity and fear is the enemy of faith and and so then you've got this passage in Philippians where Paul says work out work out which doesn't vibe with some of the other parts of Scripture your your salvation with fear and trembling which doesn't vibe with other parts of Scripture so I really wanted to dive in this and and talk about it today and and uh, hopefully some of it will make sense as we move on so let's talk about what does it mean to work out in Philippians two it says work out your salvation with fear and trembling and I want to start by saying it's not her there's this scene in Jurassic Park where he's talking about the velociraptors and he's talking about how smart they are and, and there's, there's three or four of them and he said, he said the other three are really, really smart but he said, he said there's this particular one he says when she looks at you she's working things out she's, she's processing she's thinking it through and that is not what even in the Greek just kind of as a as a translation that is not what this passage means it doesn't it doesn't mean that you're supposed to figure out your salvation or that you're supposed to process things and get it right and it in this in, in the Greek it, it more means like this guy who has kind of arrived at the pinnacle arrived at the peak and and to to get there in 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 the Greek it means to achieve to acquire to complete or to conquer and it's kind of like come get some so when it says to work out your salvation, it's not, it's not saying figure it out. It's not saying strive. It's not saying work really hard. It's saying take, acquire, arrive. That, that there's, there's risks you're going to take and there's a reward. And get, get that reward. Go for it. Go for it might be, it might, probably go for your salvation would be a translation that I would appreciate a little bit more. And so it doesn't, it doesn't speak of work. But then it says, so then we have to figure out not only what does it mean to work out, but what are we working toward? What is that thing that we're supposed to grasp in this passage? And in, in English, it's salvation. And in Greek, it's, it's from the derivative of, of sozo. And sozo we've talked about here in, in the church many times. And sozo is kind of like everything is as it was supposed to be. Like the kingdom of God has come. God has established his way. The Eden state has been restored. Communities are restored. Relationships are restored. Healing has come. People are not impoverished. People are not sick. Sozo is like the whole big package of all that is good. And we, as, as Westerners, oftentimes translate salvation to mean something completely different. And I was reading about John Wesley, the father of Methodism, this week. And one of the authors talking about him and his soteriology, which is the study of salvation. He said this, what is salvation, asks John Wesley. In essence, it's not what you think. It's not, said Wesley, about going to heaven or eternal happiness. Salvation is not about the hereafter. It is about the here and now. 
Salvation has been twisted to mean saving souls for heaven while ignoring our constant need and God's deep desire to save human lives, relationships, and communities. Salvation has been distorted to focus on what happens to us after we die rather than seeing it as an expression of the fullness and abundance that God intends for all in this life. And so when we, when we encounter this Greek word sozo, so it's just a workout to get a hold of, sozo, it doesn't mean fire insurance. It doesn't mean eternal fire insurance where you're guaranteed of not going to hell and going to heaven. Heaven and eternity and what happens in the next life is a, is a small portion of this word, but it more means bringing heaven to earth, bringing the kingdom of God down. And so, so, so when Paul says, work out your salvation, he's not saying figure out a way to go to heaven and not go to hell. He's saying, get a hold of this thing where Jesus comes down and does, does what Jesus does in the lives of people. I'm reading N.T. Wright's consummate work called Paul. And he says, I assume for many years, and many readers will still assume that the only real point of it all was to get people to believe in Jesus so that they would be, quote, saved and, quote, go to heaven when they die. This was not the concern that drove Paul. The early Christians did not focus much attention on the question of what happened to people immediately after they died. They seldom spoke about it at all. They were concerned with the kingdom of God, something that was happening and would ultimately happen on earth as in heaven. God's kingdom had already been launched through the events of Jesus' life. Unless we get this firmly in our heads, we will never understand the inner dynamic of Paul's mission. So if we have this lens that says that word in English, salvation, means not going to hell and going to heaven, we miss so much of the point of this passage that says get a hold of salvation. It's not get a hold of going to heaven. It's getting a hold of what Jesus offers, the reign of Jesus on the earth. And so when we say work out your salvation, it's very important we understand what it's talking about and what it's not talking about. And then finally, how do we work it out? Because this, this passage in Paul says to work it out with fear and trembling. And in English, when we hear fear and trembling, oh man, I don't want any of that in my life for sure. Or we think, we think God is mad or, or fiery or we have to avoid his wrath. And I, I, I think... This is where things get dicey because sometimes fear and trembling in the Greek does kind of mean that. And sometimes it means something else. And so we're going to go through just in, in Scripture kind of uh, what, it, what it means historically. But I want to I start off by saying you've got to check your theological lens at this point. Because there's, there's exegetical lenses and soteriological lenses. So exegesis is how you, how you interpret Scripture. And soteriology is the study of salvation. And so if you interpret scripture in a particular way or your soteriology says God it works in a particular way, you're going to read this passage in a particular way. And so I want to show you two fathers and ask you which, which father experience seems to connect with the overarching view of God the Father in scripture. And then that's going to start to shape our lens so that when we see these, these Greek words, phobu kaitrobu, or no, 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 no sorry, I, I knew I was going to mess that up. Um, then, we, then we, can see, we can understand them clearly. So this is, this is one particular father. And imagine a child in front of this father and the phobu the, kaitromu, the fear and trembling that this child is experiencing. And that's, that's one definition or one interpretation of phobu kaitromu is that, that there's something scary and I'm responding to it emotionally and physically. But then these children also are experiencing phobu kaitromu. And this is a totally different kind of thing. This is a totally different kind of fear 
and trembling. If they're anything like my daughter, she's yelling, too fast, too fast, too fast. But there's this, so, so there is this exhilaration that occurs. There's, there's riding the mummy like me. I want to ride it. It's exhilarating. It's fun. But boy, it, it, it's, it's fun because it's a little scary. And then there's the mummy rider like my wife that, oh, 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 it's terrible, it's terrible. Make it stop, make it stop. And both of those definitions could apply in this passage. So we have to look through, a, through our theological lens to figure out what is it saying when we get a hold of salvation with fear and trembling. What's it talking about here? Phobu kaitromu. Which one is it? And this, pass, this appears multiple times in Scripture. And here's, here's one that, that bugs the heck out of me, is that it, is the, the slaves in Roman society were, were admonished to kind of follow their masters with phobu kaitromu. So there's this, you have power over me, and so therefore I kind of submit myself to you in this reverent um, state of awe, trembling, fear, I acknowledge the consequences of coming against you. And this is, this is bad stuff, and we, we have to parse out slavery in Scripture. But here's what's super interesting about this passage. It's just moments later, it says, Masters do the same, have the same attitude towards your slaves. Turns everything on its head all of a sudden. And instead, you see that there's this trembling respect for humanity. There's this reverence and awe for what it means to be human that's being espoused in this passage. So this is one, one time when Phobu Kaitromu appears in Scripture. The other time is a hide the beer the pastors here type moment. And it's a, it's a passage, in, oh, and I don't know why Psalm 55 is at the bottom of that because I nixed that from a sermon, so just pretend it isn't there. Keep moving, nothing to see here. But in 2 Corinthians 7, um, they've sent Titus to the church to kind of do some corrective um, administration to to a church that's kind of gone south. And it says that when Titus appeared, you greeted him with phobu kai tromu. You greeted him with fear and trembling. And so I've seen it myself. I was just talking to a buddy recently that was talking about how he tries really hard not to cuss around me because I'm not a pastor. And it's kind of that, that kind of, I, I don't know how to describe that. And I just, my, my take is always just be who you are, man, and, and follow Jesus and let him shape you. I, I'm, I'm just not been out of shape about too much stuff. But people can take a pastor's authority or a pastor's position to think that I'm supposed to revere that person and I'm supposed to change my behavior and alter in front of them. And that's kind of what this is talking about, is that when, there's a, when Titus shows up at the church, they greeted him with this phobu kaitromu. And so it's, it, but it's a different kind of fear than, than riding the mummy or a father that beats you. It's just, it's just different. And it's interesting in modern Greek. So modern Greek and, and ancient Greek are, are kind of different languages that are closely tied and in modern Greek, if you type in phobu kaitromu in Greek into a Google search, for whatever reason, roller coasters stop propping up and horror movies. And it's, it's, it's the stuff that gets your blood pumping, right? That's, that's kind of the modern Greek definition. And then there's also this passage in Matthew chapter 5 where a woman is, has been really sick for a really long time and she comes to Jesus in a crowd and she sneaks through the crowd. She's not supposed to be there because she's... She's ceremonially unclean at this point. She's, she's been having her period nonstop for years, and the Hebrew law said that she was unclean and untouchable. And so she sneaks through the crowd, touching people along the way, and reaches out to Jesus' garment. And when she's touched, she's healed, and Jesus knows something has happened. And Jesus turns to, turns to the crowd and says, Who touched me? Some, somebody touched me. Some, something happened here. And it says she approaches him with phobu kaitromu. There's this trembling of 
of feeling like she doesn't belong or that there's something bigger than her out there and she's, she's, been, she's been kind of busted at this point. And so, so there's all kinds of ways that Fobukai Tromu is, is used in Scripture. And it also ties into the Hebrew words, Bayira and Barada. And Bayira and Barada are, are kind of the Hebrew uh, examples of fear and trembling. And I found this passage in Psalm that I just, I love the way it parses it out. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And so when we look at our pictures, which one of these seems to be rejoicing with trembling? The, the child in front of the dad who is out to get him, angry, frustrated, yelling, hitting, that, that, that wrathful, spiteful dad? Or is this one rejoicing with trembling? Which is which? Is which? And I can't honestly say that I, I've tackled the, the Greek enough to know where my conclusions are, but I can certainly say that the overarching view of God that I've embraced is not this dad, but this dad. And so when I've embraced this as my exegetical lens, as my soteriological lens, when I, when I see God as this good father that plays with his kids, that wants the best for them, wants them to thrive, then all of a sudden fear and trembling because you, it, could go, it could go either way in some sense. There, there's certainly reverence. There's certainly fear and adrenaline involved. I've been listening to uh, Rethinking God with Tacos, the podcast, which is on the playlist for Daylight Church this month, I believe. And it's, it's quickly become my favorite playlist that I listen to. And it's Jason Clark, who we've had here speak at the church, and who used to be the front man of a band called Fringe that I absolutely love. Um, but I was texting him this week about this sermon and kind of about my thoughts about this passage. And one of the things he mentioned was previously in the passage last week, it says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And if you view it through the lens that God is big and mad and distant and angry, when it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that's God saying, on your knees, folks. That's God in his presence driving people down in front of them, in front of him. But then there's also this possibility, depending on your lens, that when it says that, this is just God stepping up and saying, here I am. I'm here for you. And when God does that, the natural response, you hear my knees crackle, is yes. I don't know if you can even see me in the cameras right now. You might be seeing the top of my bald head. I have no idea. But it's, it's this difference between God the mad God and God the Father, God revealed as Abba and revealed in Jesus. And, it, and, and the phobu kaitromu that those people are experiencing right then as they bow the knee before Jesus could be one of two types. It could be abject terror, and maybe, maybe it's mixed in the crowd, depending on what, what your connection with God has been. But, but I have this feeling that on that day, when God is revealed fully, it, it, it will be, oh, wow, amazing, worship. It'll, 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 it'll be a natural expression of reverence and awe. And the phobu kaitromu will be that adrenaline pumping up of you've seen something beyond you. You've experienced something amazing. You've experienced something that you never thought you could experience. And so, so when we say work out your salvation with fear and trembling, one interpretation is make sure you're a good boy so that you can go to heaven and not go to hell and be scared about this thing. But there's other possibilities. And one possibility is that this ain't how you're supposed to live your life. That if your if you're faith in Jesus, if your walk through this world is one of, that's lackluster, 
if you say things like, I'm bored pretty often, maybe you're not working out your salvation with fear and trembling in the Greek sense of getting a hold of everything that God has to offer with reverent, adrenaline-pumped, adrenaline-soaked living. Because if you're going to get a hold of the hand of Jesus, he's going to take you places that are, oh boy, what am I getting into here? That may be what it's talking about. And this, this may mean, if, if, if this is your face, it may mean you're missing out. It may mean you t- need to take a leap of faith. It may mean you, you need to enter into uncharted waters. God, God is not going to leave you where, where you are. He's, he's not going to... He's not going to let you be bored with life. If you, if you work out your salvation, if you get a hold of sozo life with reverence and excitement, he's, he's going to ask you to do some stuff that's pretty uncomfortable. He's going to ask you to have conversations that are challenging. He's going to ask you to give up things that you don't really want to give up to fill you with life and abundance. And when he meets the woman at the well, he talks about how living water fills you to overflowing and you'll never thirst again. And that just doesn't... That doesn't describe this kind of life. And I think this passage is, is saying that. And you're going to ask the questions of will the parachute open when you, when you jump and you take these leaps of faith? And the answer is yes. But it's also going to say you're going to want to pack with care. So, 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 so it's not to say that the whole thing is a thrill ride where your father is twirling you around, with, that there's no danger involved. You, 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 want to make, you want to take this thing seriously. You want to come with your own batteries and follow Jesus as a, as a human being, as an individual that's chasing after God and taking it seriously, but not, not out of fear, not, not, not out of that gripping, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, please, please save me. Please, please, please take me to heaven and don't let me go to hell. That's, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about getting a hold of everything that God has to offer. So when we talk about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, there's kind of the traditional, uh, actually traditional would take it back further than it, than it needs to go back. There's, there's kind of the commonly held view that this means make sure you go to heaven and not go to hell and do so scared. But I think if you go to the Greek and you go to the original language and you start to, and you start to view it through the lens of God being good and God being revealed in Jesus, what you end up with is what Christ offers is earth-shaking. Get some. That's kind of what this passage means and kind of what it translates at. So let go forever of the idea that I have to Figure it out so that I can go to heaven. But instead, view it as, wow, this thing is amazing. i got to get a hold of this. i I, I got to come with my own batteries and work, work, work to, to acquire this. I've got to let go of whatever I need to let go of to, to get a hold of the hands of the Father that spins me around, that heals the woman who's had the issue of blood for years, the one who knows you and cares about you and, 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 and fulfills everything in you. That's worth, that's worth letting your adrenaline come up. That's worth taking those plunges that he's asked you to take. It's worth taking the leaps of faith that he's asked you to take. I'll close with this thought. It's okay. The chute will open. Whatever you have to let go of in this world, whatever risks you have to take, you're falling into the, the, the only hands that can hold you. Your hands cannot hold you. The hands of your friends cannot hold you. The hands of money cannot hold you. The hands of acclaim cannot hold you. All the things that we try to put under us as our support systems will not hold us, but the chute will open because God will hold you. And I can't believe I said this, but YOLO. <laughs> I sat at my desk and laughed about this and was kind of embarrassed that it's even on my screen at all. But it means you, you only live once and every millennial knows that. But this is reality, is that you, you only get one shot at this thing. And this is not the way. 
this is not the way, and this is definitely not the way. You, you, have this, you have this chance in life to get a hold of a God who adores you, that can do anything, that wants to shake you and transform you and shape you into a lover, a lover of him and a lover of other people. And, and man, I, I'm not espousing the YOLO tattoo at all or the YOLO lifestyle or foolishness, but you get one shot and now's the time. The great philosopher and poet Cat Stevens said this, if you turn to face your fear, it will disappear like it wasn't there. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's really wonderful that right after that he says, for it is God that is doing this thing in you. It's not you that does it. And if you'll be willing to take those leaps, if I, I can think of so many earmarks in my life and so many, so many markers in, in other people's lives where they... They had an opportunity to let go of something. They had an opportunity to respond when somebody preached. They had an opportunity to tune into a broadcaster or to give something they didn't want to give. And it felt like a leap of faith and it felt scary and it felt, it felt like you're, you're walking out into the unknown. And what, what Paul is saying here, here is walk into the unknown. Take the leap of faith. Whatever it is that God's asking you to do, do it and his hands will be there to sustain you. And you'll, turn, you'll see those fears, the fear and trembling that you're, working, you're, you're sorting things out or you're acquiring with you'll turn and see that, that they were not worth being scared of at all. For it is God working in you to accomplish his goals for your life. There's nothing to be scared of in this life at all because the hands of God will sustain you and that chute will open.